Hey, you guys have your Bibles with you? Flip those open to Matthew chapter 28. Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We're beginning a series this morning that I am very excited about. We are going to spend, oh, let's get rid of the kids first. I'm so glad they're flagging me down from the back. Kids head to Kidstown Church, Kidstown Church, Children's Church, out the back with Miss Colleen. All right, Matthew chapter 28. We are going to be spending the next uh, month plus actually looking at three verses of Scripture. So right out of the gate, I want to give you guys a homework assignment. During the next month, I want you and your whole household to memorize these three verses of Scripture. It's Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Write it out by hand, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it on your refrigerator, put it on the dashboard of your car. By the time we hit August, I want you guys to absolutely own this chunk of scripture. Amen? All right, so that, that's a to-do. If you're going to forget, write it on the back of your hand or somewhere where, where you will be reminded. Okay, um, we're going to open up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to begin with 28 verse 18. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we pray your blessing on today's study. Master, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to all of us um, during these moments as they approach. Father, um, Help me to be a vessel for you. I pray that your spirit would speak through what I've prepared, but it would bridge the gap to the heart of everyone who's listening so these words would not be empty, but these words would be your words. They would penetrate who we are and change us for eternity and change your kingdom because we have listened today. God, help uh, everyone in this room to do the difficult task of listening, including myself. What do we want to hear from you today? It's in your most precious name we pray, Father. Amen. Well, if you're looking at your Bible and you've got chapter uh, 28, verse 18 open, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were going to be discussing the Great Commission. This isn't the Great Commission. The Great Commission comes in verse 19. What are we doing, Ben? Oh, how embarrassing for him. He missed it on his first week. The Great Commission actually begins in verse 18. I want to illustrate this very quickly just by mentioning a, a quick, quick synopsis of biblical interpretation. If you are reading the book of Proverbs, you're having a unique experience. The book of Proverbs is sort of a unicorn in terms of uh, Bible interpretation. And I mean this by that. The book of Proverbs are almost all disjointed phrases. So they are one wisdom phrase and then another cleverly constructed wisdom phrase and then another one. And so you can lift most of those out of context and you know exactly what they mean because it's just a single phrase. Most of the rest of the Bible is not like that. You cannot just grab a scripture passage and go, well, I'll just deal with this one by itself. That is not the case. We have to look at scripture in context, and particularly, particularly when we see one certain word, a conjunction. Look at verse 19. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to take a pen, pencil, your own blood, whatever, and I want you to underline the word, therefore. Therefore. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you must find out what it is therefore. Huh? You're going to hear it a million times from me. When you see the word therefore, you find out what it is therefore. This particular conjunction where you see it, what it, what's telling you is this. If you want to understand what's about to be said, you have to look back at what was just said. All right? So the word therefore, we have to find out what it is therefore. Let me illustrate this. If Jesus were to say this, nachos are delicious. Therefore, go and make disciples. Your job, my job as a student of the word, is to figure out what the taste of nachos has to do with making disciples. Does that make sense? Okay, 
So we're going to look at this passage. Jesus did not say that nachos are delicious, though in fact they are. What he said was this. Look at Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and spoke, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Today we're discussing absolute authority. You're not the boss of me. Ever heard that? Ever said that? Now, if you've got children, you've probably heard something like that before. If you remember being on the playground as a kid and trying to regulate rules in a group game, you probably remember hearing that. You're not the boss of me. People asserting their will, asserting their dominance, asserting their control. I'm the authority here, not you. How childish. How very much like every one of us. Now, on some level, you're, you're probably not going to be saying God, you're not the boss of me. But I think you're going to be living it on some level or another. Let me illustrate. Uh, Lisa and I have now had 11 foster kids come live with us through our our home. And sometimes we'll do things like this. We'll say, uh, time to make your bed. Go make your bed. And here's the response we get. If you can't tell, I'm walking. Just very, very slowly. Have you you experienced that? Or, Or you have the situation where you say, uh, go make your bed, and then you go, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. And, you know, they've had an hour to go to the bathroom, but now it's, a, it's an emergency. Go to the bathroom. Or, I, I don't know how. I can't make my bed. I don't know how. And, and so they, they go to the bed, and you're like, okay, here's how we're doing it. I'm getting halfway done. You finish it. Oh, and they just, oh, I mess it up. See, I mess everything up, right? Have you seen this? Have you experienced this? Okay. The question we're dealing with today is absolute authority absolute authority. Does Jesus have absolute authority? He claimed it. Well, let's ask this question beginning today. What is authority? What is authority? We're going to question authority. Authority is this, the power to enforce laws, exact obedience, command, determine, or judge, or one that is invested with this power. So let me ask you this question. What has power over you as you've come here today? What is now controlling you, even at this moment? Many of you are probably thinking, nothing. I'm king of my own castle. I am the authority. I rule over everything in my sphere of influence. Did you pay taxes this year? Why'd you do it? Out of the goodness of your heart? Did you say to yourself, you know who needs more money is the government because they spend it so wisely. No, not so much? Well, then why did you do it? Because... The government exerts authority over you, and you put yourself under the authority of the government. Did anybody on your way out today just go, speed limits are boring. Let's see how fast I can get to church if I disregard every light and every law. Did you do that? Don't raise your hand if you did. (laughs) I see some people pointing. (laughs) Hopefully that's not on camera. Why didn't we do that? Well, because we're recognizing danger and authority. They're, they're, to, to some degree or another, we're letting the government again be an authority in our lives. Did anybody go to UDF this morning and go, hmm, I'll take all the donuts and a gallon of milk and then run to the car, floor it. Why not? Don't you like donuts? The reason is because you're under some authority. What about social norms? We call them mores. Social norms. Did anybody walk into church this morning and somebody reaches out to shake your hand and you just slap it away. Or if they go to give you a hug, you just bodily jump into their arms. Did you do that? No? I hope to see that next week, by the way. That would be fairly entertaining. 
The reason you didn't do that is because to some degree or another, you've allowed the social norms in our culture to be authoritative in your life. You embrace them. You treat them as though they are a, a permanent reality, something that needs to be observed. What about in the family? Do you have authority in your family structure? I hope that you all enjoyed love and respect from your many family members this morning. Children always obeying their parents, always listening obediently, looking for some opportunity to serve. But sometimes you have to give reminders. Now, where do these authorities come from? Oh, let me mention one more. Um, did anybody violate natural law this morning? As you walked out the door, did you look at the car and think, no sense telling how fast that can go. I'm going to disobey the law of gravity and the law of inertia, and then you fly here Superman style. Why not? Did you want to? Wouldn't that be cool? But the fact is, is you are under authorities. We are under laws. We are all subject to certain laws. Now, how is it that these institutions required, are acquired authority over you? Let's think about that for just a moment. Natural laws, they've got inherent power. It's part of the fabric of the universe. You can decide all day long that you don't like the law of gravity. You're not going to get out of it. Uh, there was an internet meme, a video of this kid not too long ago, uh, who decided that a cartoon named Dragon Ball Z could be reality if he just wanted it to be enough. And so he sat in front of the camera and made these horrible noises and shook with intensity as he tried to become a superhuman being. And then he put it on the internet. Ugh. Some parent is proud. As regards social norms, why do we observe social norms? Well, the reason it's got authority over us is because, to some degree or another, we've kind of been subject to traditions, rules, regulations that kind of control us. If you wonder if that's the case, when you get on an elevator, instead of facing the doors, just turn around and face everyone else. Think of, now, th that seems like a minor thing, but think about how weird that is. And, and again, nobody made that set of rules. It's not like you probably got coached on that. That's just something you observe because traditions carried it down into your life. And you, you recognize that as an authority. With regard to family authorities, um, the reason a family, there's, there's an authority within that is, to some degree or another, it's natural. If you've had a child, um, when you first hold that little baby in your hands, you're typically not going, uh, who's in charge of this? I can't, I don't know what to do. You know, we recognize almost instantly, I have some control here and some responsibility here. And so there is an authoritative structure that's just developed in the nature of who we are. And then there's also in the family, there's contractual authority structures. Uh, and what I mean by that is we make these certain covenants. So for instance, the covenant of marriage. I say to my spouse, I'm giving myself to you. I will serve you. I will protect you. And she says, to me, I will give myself to you. I will protect you and align my whole life with you and put myself under your headship. And so there is this agreement that takes place in a marriage contract. We might call it a covenant. And that same thing happens, uh, say you're adopting a child. You make this covenant with the child. I will protect you. I will be yours, your father, your mother. You will be mine. Now, I, the reason I'm mentioning all these things is I want you to just think about how God fulfills every one of these requirements. Not just those requirements, but also the one the government uses to control you, the capacity to levy a threat against you. God has the power, ultimately, to level, level sincere threat over you. He's, Jesus says, don't be afraid of man who can only kill the body, and after that, nothing. Be afraid of God who can kill the body and throw your soul into hell. 
God maintains a serious thread along those lines. God also has a familial relationship. He created us. He owns us in that respect, right? Right? We also have a covenant relationship with him. If you've come to follow Christ, you have covenanted with, with God, and you've said, I am yours. You are mine. And there's a covenant relationship there. And it's just natural law. I mean, we, we are built to worship God. The most rigid atheist or agnostic still finds themselves occasionally in life going, are you there? Or if you are there, I hate you. But for one reason or another, they still turn to that God. That all said, how do you feel about the word submission? How does that make you feel? Do you like the word submission? To submit? It means to put yourself under the authority of another. To submit means to place yourself under the authority of another. Francis Chan said this in a sermon not long ago. Authority is such a beautiful, beautiful word. When's the last time you heard somebody say that? So many people despise that word because they hate the thought of submission. And why do we hate the thought of submission? Because we are naturally born rebels. It is in us. You might not be thinking amen. Let me describe it for you for a moment. I, I want you to just consider this. The theological history of humanity is this. If you've never read through the Old Testament, here's the story of Israel in a nutshell. God says, do this. Israel says, okay. And then Israel says, nah. And then God says, or else. And Israel says, nah. And then God stomps on them, flushes them, and then reasserts a new people and brings them back up to speed. And this happens over and over again. A former student of mine called this, this toilet bowl theology. It is, it's this constant flush of the garbage is here, get rid of the garbage, start over. The garbage is here, get rid of the garbage, start over. It's true of theological history. It's true of American history. Um, I love this country. I think this is a phenomenal country. But that being said, we love our rebels. We love the people who throw off the shackles. We love the people who rise up and, and uh, say no to authority. We love our freedom. It's a good thing. But there's a problem when God says, yes, but you must be under my control. Some of us still go, nah, I don't want to do that. We all have a personal history of rebellion. Most of you have never been in a situation where you absolutely said no to Jesus, but you have done what I talked about with some of our disobedient children before, right? You, you've said, uh, later. Or you've said, I've got something more important right now. Or, yeah, I mean, it's a direct command, but that's for super Christians. This is not for me. I'm an ordinary human being, God. You didn't, maybe didn't understand that. I mess up everything I touch. This isn't for me. And that's the mentality that some of us approach the Lord with. And it's natural for us. We're in our households, and even as a child, you start going, my parents don't know what they're talking about. And, and you, in you know, fifth, sixth grade, you start getting to those teenage years and you're like, I'm smarter than my mom and dad. Their rules don't make any sense. By the time you're 16, you know everything. Right, guys? Which, it's a great place to be. You know everything when you're 16 and we've just forgotten so much. Um, and you rebel in the household and eventually you're out from underneath the auspices of your parents and you move on from there and, and you go into a workplace or into school and you're trying to rise up and become empowered to become autonomous everyone say autonomous autonomous is a word that comes from two greek words autos and namos self law 
I want to be a law unto myself. I want to rule myself. I want to make the calls. I want to say what's right and wrong. Me. Human beings struggle to have that. When it's denied them, when it's denied us, we've got problems. The problem, the major problem for us is this. What happens when someone shows up in your life and claims not just to be an authority, but to be the authority, the absolute and total authority. Someone who shows up and says, I own the rights to everything you do. I own the rights to you and everything you are. I own the rights to everything you make. I even have the right to tell you what to think. And you have no grounds on which to refuse me. I am telling you what to do with your life. Well, for most of us, that's a serious problem. What's your gut reaction when you hear such a voice? Ooh, I don't like this. Surely this is the voice of the ultimate villain. This is the tyrant who must be raged against. Tell us, who has the audacity to say such a thing to us? Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much authority? That is a big little word. If you want to underline all, and then write that in your margin. Big little word. All authority in heaven and on earth. So, let's talk about answering this question. It's a question that is brought to Jesus over and over again. And that question is, who do you think you are? Have you ever asked Jesus that question? Look at Luke chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Jesus, just who do you think you are? What gives you the right to tell me what to do? Luke chapter 20, 1 and 2. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people ask him this question. On one, one of the days when he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. That is, they were confronting Jesus. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? So let's ask Jesus that question for the rest of our time. I've suggested to you that you might have a tendency toward rebellion. I hope you recognize that about yourself. Let's see what Jesus says about why he should be able to tell us what to do. Jesus has all authority. He's going to establish his authority in what he says and what he does. Jesus shows up on the scene with a new way of speaking. This is the first thing I want to point us to. Jesus comes on the scene with a new way of speaking. So what gives a teacher or preacher authority? Well, in Jesus' day, it was just a couple things, just a very few things. Number one was pedigree. Pedigree. What was your genetic lineage? Who do you come from? Who is your daddy, and what does he do? This is what gave you authority or took away authority from you. So Jesus, as he appears on the scene, many people will ask him, and they'll be questioning him, hey, where are you from? Who's your dad? What lineage do you come from? And Jesus almost never responds to them. Sometimes they're overt about it. They're like, we don't come from suspect parentage like you do. And what they're saying is, nobody knows who your dad is. We don't know who your dad is. And they'll say that explicitly sometimes too. Let me just say this. That's one of those moments when somebody comes to Jesus and they go, we don't even know who your dad is. I think Jesus goes, no, you don't. You don't get it. So there is a genetic lineage. Who do you come from? And Jesus is questioned on that often, but Jesus is also questioned on this issue. What is your intellectual lineage? What rabbis do you follow? Do you guys remember the Apostle Paul? Uh, he trained under somebody. Does anybody know the name of the person Paul trained under? I think I heard it. 
Gamaliel, that is correct. Gamaliel was a very well-respected, well-loved member of the Sanhedrin. He was very important in Jewish circles. And Paul, having trained under Gamaliel, would be a bit like if somebody, uh, you met somebody and you found out they had doctorates from Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and Oxford. All of them, I mean, it would, it would be kind of that for the Jewish person to even hear from Paul. So when Paul showed up to a congregation, there's a reason. When he came into a new town, they went, look, uh, there's room for you in the synagogue. Please, come tell us. Come tell us. We, we know who your teacher is. And Paul would have an opportunity to just immediately start speaking to them because he trained under Gamaliel. Who did Jesus train under? People were astonished by this guy. Like, this is an uneducated man. How is it that he's baffling these people? The best rabbis in the Jewish tradition were the best parrots. I don't mean this to be derogatory. I mean the best Jewish rabbis could tell you what every other rabbi said. They could give you illustrations from other rabbis and express the different nuances between the views of Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi whoever, right? And, and so long as they could say that, they had credibility, they had authority. But Jesus comes onto the scene and he does something different. He speaks differently. When Jesus referenced prophets and patriarchs, he did so as if they agreed with him, not the other way around. That was different. Jesus said things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Now what Jesus is doing is he's going, look, you've got part of the story. Let me fill in the, the blanks here. I want you to understand how things really are. Jesus was no parrot. He did not speak in conditionals. Jesus spoke with absolutes. When Jesus spoke, it was with authority. When he says things like, truly, truly, I tell you, sometimes we miss that because like in our culture, that doesn't mean anything. Here's what he's saying. I'm telling you the absolute truth. What I'm telling you is the truth. Rabbis did not speak like this. This was not the way any other official spoke. Jesus, when he references God, does not necessarily reference God as an authority. Usually, he's referencing things as though he is God. That was rather different. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, it's, it's right after the Sermon on the Mount. People are talking about Jesus. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus spoke, he was speaking as though he were God. Who does he think he is? Look at John chapter 7, verse 45 through 47. John 7, 45 through 47. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Jesus' discussions, Jesus' power in speaking was so impressive. Just think for a moment about the interchanges he had with the Pharisees and the scribes in the temple courts. These are people who were turning out. These were the most respected authorities in Jesus' day. They were turning out to trip him up, and they would level some accusation against him where they'd challenge him with a question, and he would answer in such a way that these men were dumbfounded. They'd sit slack-jawed and stare at him, or they'd run away or go converse as a group going, how can we answer this? What should we say? And they'd run away. Never has a man spoken like this before. John chapter 7, verse 45 through 47. There's, there was a standing, um, a standing requirement of the soldiers in, at this time that they were to arrest Jesus as soon as they found him in the teaching in the temple courts. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why have you not brought him? Soldiers, why didn't you bring him in? The response is, the officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. 
There's something different here. There's something radically other, something holy here, something separate. Jesus, though, was not just talk. If you're going, hey, there are a lot of great speakers in the world. Jesus is more than a great speaker. Let's consider more of his life. We'll talk about Jesus' self-understanding. Open up your Bibles to John 18, verse 4 through 8. John 18, verse 4 through 8. Jesus had another encounter with guards, and it's recorded here. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is about to die. He knows he's about to be put to death, and he's just been speaking with the Lord, and he is riddled with turmoil. A contingent of guards goes to arrest him. That means we're probably talking about 200 plus guards. Jesus was constantly surrounded by a crowd and the leaders and officials were afraid that if they went and tried to arrest Jesus, that the mob would consume them and they would be destroyed by the crowd. So they take a contingent of guards, they go out to get Jesus. So think, it is a small army going out to gather this man in. And as they go out to take him in to custody, here's what we read. Then Jesus knowing all that was about to happen to him, went to them and asked, Whom do you want? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said, I am. Pause. If your Bible says, I am he, you can cross it out. The he part. In the Greek, this is how this is rendered. It is a state of being and it's masculine in nature. But what Jesus is saying here is, I am. Where have you heard that before in the Bible? Moses at the burning bush. Moses says, whom should I say is sending me? And God says, I am. Tell them I am is sending you. When Jesus says these words, I want you to look at what happens. And Judas, who was betraying him, was also standing with him. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Drew back and fell to the ground? Hundreds of people turning out to arrest this guy. He says, I am. And the nature of what he said, the truth, the power of what he said, was such that it drove them back and caused them to fall down. Do you think these men were just knocked prone because Jesus was such a persuasive speaker? Or do you think there was more going on here? Let me ask you this question. Why do people fall down involuntarily in the Bible? We see it happen a lot. Can I give you some illustrations? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is brought into the presence of the Lord, and he flops down on his face and says, Woe to me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He, he says, I'm coming apart. The, the literal description is, I'm coming apart. It's like I'm being disintegrated in your presence. We see this when John, the Apostle John, comes before res the resurrected Christ in the book of Revelation. John, arguably one of Jesus' closest friends here on this earth, when, when he sees Jesus in the book of Revelation, he flops on his face and he just goes numb. Human bodies are weird. Amen? Some more so than others now as things progress. Um, you ever experience jelly knees, like weak in the knees? Have you ever experienced that? You get startled and suddenly you're, ooh, can I get, get one of those things? Uh, that happens to my wife a lot. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy that. I enjoy kind of patting up behind her going, hey, and then, you know, watch her just drop. I can do that because I'm her husband. You don't do that. She won't like you. She has to live with me. 
That said, in religious circles and religious studies, there is an experience called the numinous. It's, it's a word that is used to define a specific interaction that humans have. And it's this weak in the legs, flopping on your, like losing control of your body feeling, the numinous. Um, there's a, a very famous religious scholar named Merce Eliada. He's, if you've ever had a world religions course, you've probably read something by him. And he has a, a phrase for this. He calls it the mysterious, or mysterium tremendum. Mysterium tremendum. It's the terrifying mystery. And it's widely recognized across all world religions uh, and, and systems. If something really bizarre happens, people tend to lose their footing and just drop. Well, it happens a lot in Christianity. It happens a lot in the scriptures. We see this as a regular part of the, the Christian paradigm. C.S. Lewis writes about this in The Problem of Pain. Here's what he says. Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger, and you would probably feel fear. But if you were told there's a ghost in the next room, and you believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but the mere fact that it is a ghost. It's uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. C.S. Lewis goes on to talk about this, and he says, in, in the condition that a great spirit, some powerful force, and he's meaning God by this, were to show up in a particular room, like if God were right here, right now, manifestly present, what would you and I do? You're darn tootin' we would. We would be flopped face down. And he says, he says this experience, this numinous, this experience of God and the power of God uh, is such that it basically takes everything you ever accomplished and it makes it small, like it's nothing. Shakespeare talked about this and he said, he said talking about the presence of God, under him my genius is rebuked. Under him my genius is rebuked. I'm made small in his presence. This is the experience the soldiers have here. This is the experience Peter had when they had the massive catch of fish. And remember, Peter comes up on the beach and he flops down in front of Jesus and he says, go away from me. That's the numinous. That is the experience of God. Who does Jesus think he is? Who has the power to forgive sin? That's right, God. Uh, Psalm 51 says that. Again, Psalms, uh, David is talking to God and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. All sin ultimately is against God on some level. Even if it's a sin against another person, it is against God. And yet Jesus shows up on the scene and a paralytic is lowered in front of him and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody around is like, well, you can't do that. <laughs> and he, he looks at them and says, so that you know the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man does. Who does Jesus think he is? Standing in the place of God like that. Hmm. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, I'm sending you prophets, teachers, wise men, scribes. Who sends prophets? A prophet is somebody who hears directly from God and goes to the people. Jesus says, I'm sending you prophets. Who does he think he is? The 70, Jesus' 70 disciples, he sends them out to go minister to different peoples, and they come back rejoicing. They're like, Jesus, the demons even obey us. We, we speak in your name, and even the demons are subject under our authority. And Jesus rejoices, and he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Who talks like that? 
Who has that experience of the celestial realm that knows what is happening like that, that can speak to these eternal matters? Who does Jesus think he is? John chapter 19, verse 9 through 12. Go ahead and flip your Bibles over there. There's some fun stuff here. John chapter 19, verse 9 through 12. You'll remember that as Jesus is on trial for his life, the empire of Rome, that is the strongest nation in the world, is controlling this region they're in. And Jesus is brought before Pilate, the representative of Rome to Jerusalem. And he stands before the highest authority that he's probably going to meet, the highest earthly authority that he's going to meet in his life. Pilate comes into the room, John chapter 19, verse 9 through 12. And he entered the praetorium, or not John, I'm sorry. Uh, Pilate comes into the room. And he entered the praetorium and said to Jesus, this is Pilate, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate informs Jesus that he's got authority over Jesus' life, and Jesus tells Pilate, I know precisely where your authority comes from. And it's not from the Senate, and it's not from Caesar. You were empowered from on high. You have no authority over to me, except that it has been divinely granted. Now, Jesus, you might not notice this, but Jesus is flexing on Pilate a little bit here. Because Pilate shifts, he changes his tune at this moment. Notice, Pilate is so unnerved that he begins hunting for some way to get rid of his authority. Have you noticed that in his story? He says, he, he tries to send Jesus to Herod, and they have this swap back and forth where he's like, Herod, you judge him. You judge him. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate sends him back to Herod. And eventually, Pilate comes to the point where he takes Jesus out in front of the crowd, and he goes, who would you like me to release? I got two criminals for you here. Who do you want to release? And they say of Jesus, crucify him. We want Barabbas. And Pilate, still unnerved at this point, he's basically given the authority to the mob. And then he brings out a, a, a basin of water and he washes his hand and says, his blood's not on my head. His blood's on the heads of you. And the people are crying out and they say, his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. Which in one of those amazing Holy Spirit moments, you look at it and you go, oh, are they, they calling down a curse on themselves? They probably think they are. When has Jesus' blood been a bad thing? His blood be on my head and on the heads of my children. Jesus has authority over every power in this world. Jesus has authority over nature. Everyone's a, sub a subject to nature, right? Nope. Jesus has a divine prerogative to break natural law. He causes the lame to walk the blind to see. He cleanses the leper. At one stage of the game, we mentioned it earlier in the worship service, Jesus is in a boat taking a nap in a, in a storm and his disciples wake him up and they're like, we're going to die. And he stands up and he's like, you guys of little, you little people of little faith. And it says he rebukes the wind and waves. That's a, very, that's a very religious sounding word. Here's what it means. He stood up and went, shut up. And everything went calm. His disciples in the aftermath of that, they say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and waves obey him? What kind of man indeed? He tells the sea to shut up and it goes still as death. This man commands water to become wine and it does. For he crafted the water and he formed the very idea of a grape. That was his. This man decides he needs lunch for a few thousand people. 
and volume and mass and numbers and measurements become meaningless under the pressure of his divine will. As a few loaves and a few fish feed thousands. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. What about death? I mean, death's the ultimate power, right? Who can refuse that? It's going to happen to everybody. Much to the chagrin of our culture right now. You can't stave it off. It's going to hit us all. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. And no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Listen to this. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now here's an interesting feature about this text. As you look through the rest of the New Testament, here's what you're going to see over and over again. God raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Romans chapter 8, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, 15, etc., etc. There are a number of times in the New Testament we're told God raises Jesus from the dead. And here's Jesus saying, I have the authority to raise me from the dead. So which is right? Both. Who does this man think he is? He thinks he's the Lord over all creation. He believes that he has forged the whole cosmos and it exists by him and for him and through him and through him all these things are held together. That's what he believes. As Thomas confronted Jesus, do you remember this? Thomas, I wouldn't believe in this guy unless I can see the holes and put my fingers in them. Unless I see the hole in his side, I can stick my hand in there. I won't even believe that it's the guy. And Jesus appears and goes, here I am, dude, check it out. And Thomas falls in front of him. He says, Hakuriasmu, Hatheasmu, Lord of me, God of me. And Jesus doesn't go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who said I was God? Jesus accepts the divine praise because he is divine. What about spiritual authority? John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is confronted again by these Pharisees and teachers of the law. And, and they come, and come before him, and they have this big argument. And in the midst of this argument, they start debating the nature of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Listen, John chapter 8, verse 53 through 58. If you've got your Bibles, open up to this one and get your pen out. This is, this is solid. They say to him, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And, it, and you have not come to know him, but I know him. And I say that, or it, I'm sorry, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, past tense, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There's that phrase again. How did the Jews receive it? Well, they picked up rocks to stone him to death. They wanted to kill him. Jesus is not just saying, I am the God in the burning bush. Jesus is also making, it's not like, it's not like Jesus has uh, kind of the wrong grammar here. Shouldn't it be before Abraham was born, I was? That would be impressive. 
Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. As in, I am the divine eternal. I am outside of time, in and through time, all at once. I am at all places in time. That's who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What about the temple? It's the center of Jewish life. Doesn't the temple rule? Shouldn't the temple have authority over Jesus? Jesus told his disciples as they were admiring the temple, he said, not one of these stones will be left on top of another. This is all going to be torn down. And the disciples were notably shocked. I mean, if you were a Jew, to hear that the temple was going to be torn down would be devastating. And they said, when will this happen? What will be the signs of the times? And he tells them, but he tells them that not one stone is going to be left on another. Do you know in AD 70 what happened? In the lifetime of the disciples, in the lifetime of the disciples, most of them saw this transpire. Rome came in and they, they took Jerusalem and they accidentally lit a fire in the temple and it started burning. And the, the fire was so intense that it actually melted the precious metals and the metals dripped down in between the crevices of the rocks. And so when the Romans started disassembling it, they went at it. They tore one stone from the other until the whole place was torn down. Just like he said. Jesus said to them, your house is left to you desolate. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said to this, but I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. How do demons respond to Jesus and his authority? Remember the Legion story? Jesus shows up in the Gennesaret region and he gets off the boat and these men come down and they flop down in front of him and, and they're, they're saying, have you come to torment us before the appointed time, son of the most high? Let me tell you a little, little quick synopsis of what has happened in world history as regards expelling demons. Every world religion around the world recognizes the existence of demons. It is true across the board. Demons exist. Uh, we, we, have, we have notable uh, documents from Assyria and other groups. Uh, Buddhism, even like Hinduism, a lot of these groups, all, they all believe that demons exist. And there are usually major prohibitions on making deals with demons on any level. This is true of, of current world culture. This is true of ancient culture. That being said, do you know how demons were cast out before Jesus showed up on the scene? Let me tell you about a Jewish ritual to cast out a demon. This, was, this is part of how demons were cast out. They, you made deals with them. You struck an accord with them. And so one of the traditional methods was you would tie a dog, you would dig up the root of a tree and then tie a dog off to the root of a tree and you would put, a, put the possessed person against another tree and tie that person to the tree so that the person was facing the dog. And then you would try to make a deal with the demon to make it leave the person and go into the dog. When Jesus shows up and confronts Legion, does it sound like he's making a deal? please let us go out into the pigs. Yeah, go ahead. They're bargaining with him. They're trying to get him to relent. When Christianity showed up on the scene, from the time of Jesus onward, dealing with demons has been a whole different issue because authority was not just belonging to Jesus, but he bestowed it on his followers. What do you do with this guy? What do you do with him? He claims absolute authority. What are your options? Well, for many people, they say, well, he's a good teacher. Like, he's making some great recommendations for us about how to live. That's who he is. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come before him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In, uh, in New York City, Timothy Keller has a, a sizable church, and he was preaching on this issue. And uh, he's preaching to a congregation from New York, so he knows there are a lot of people who were there who were not really Christian. They just kind of think Jesus is good, and he's talking about this mentality, the idea that Jesus was just a good teacher. He made some great recommendations. Uh, and he says, you know, some of you say that you love the teachings of Christianity, which only proves that you've never read them. With all due respect, I'm not trying to make fun of you if you feel that way. If you actually read the teachings of Jesus, they are absolutely saturated with his self-understanding. If you have a mild response to Jesus, you have no intellectual integrity. Jesus claims to be Lord and God, the absolute authority. And that's the only option he's left for us to choose. Now that being said, we know who we are rebels on some level or another even if it's a subtle rebellion sometimes rebels we know who he is god the absolute authority so let's talk about why this matters why this one verse makes a huge difference i want to talk about bestowing authority can we say no to god in good conscience can we say no to god okay jesus your lord you've got all the power but i'm just a normal christian i'm not a super christian so i know you're talking to somebody else Listen, as the weeks go on, you will see that he is not talking to the apostles or just people who were super Christians. He is talking to all of us who claim to be his disciples. All of us. Can you say no to the IRS? Can you say no to the police? How's that go? <laughs> people are trying it right now. Would you... You wouldn't say to no, no to those entities. Why? Why? Why would you think the God of the universe can be rejected? How, how could we for a moment think that we can say no to him and that's okay? So why was this passage so important? Jesus, um, he establishes absolute authority here in Matthew 28, 18, because what he says next, because what he says next is not to be questioned. It is not to be undermined. There is no authority that can override the command that follows this is the greatest commission. This is him telling us what we have to do with our lives. So what is a commission? What is a commission? A commission is an act of granting certain powers or the authority to carry out a particular task or duty. It is granting power or authority. When Jesus gives the greatest commission, he is granting power and to who? Jesus is saying two things here. He's saying this, I'm giving you a task that you cannot ignore. You cannot set it aside. You cannot treat it with impunity. Heaven and earth are mine. You are mine. This is my command. You must carry it out. He's also saying this, I have authority. Therefore, I'm bestowing my authority on you. You go forth as my emissary, the emissary of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I put my name on you. I put my approval on you. You have my authority. Lastly, if you're just feeling the weight of this and you're like, wow, that's crushing. Okay, Jesus, you're in charge. 
Um, I want to suggest to you that there, this, is a, this is an authority structure that grants freedom. This is an authority structure that grants freedom. There are two ways to look at this, this whole sermon. One way is to go, ah, oh, he's in charge. I'm not in charge. The other way is to go, he's in charge. I'm not in charge. Blessed relief. Can you imagine right now if I told you, you are responsible for fixing the United States of America? That's your responsibility. You are responsible for fixing racial dis, disunity and, and lack of harmony in the United States. Do you want that task? Do you, do you want this task? Here's the task. Save every human being you've ever encountered. Do you want that task? That is a crushing weight, isn't it? But there's something to be said about a God who shows up and goes, that's my task, and here's what I want you to do. Amen? Let me illustrate it this way. Um, and you guys get nervous driving sometimes. You start looking around at traffic. I was a nervous driver when I was first learning. I was petrified, white-knuckled on the steering wheel because there's a part of me that knows all it takes is this, and I can kill everybody that's in my car and everybody who's in the car coming at me. Just a movement. That's it. That much of movement. If I've just made you paranoid about driving, I'm sorry. <laughs> kind of. But I, knowing that that's the case, driving can be a ridiculous experience when you look around and you think, these numbskulls are not even paying attention. This is crazy. What are we doing here? This is so dangerous. If you think that way. But there was, there was a time when I did not think that way. Any guys remember life back in the, uh, the station wagon era? <laughs> remember that? Mom and dad used to take out the station wagon, put down the back seat, and you put blankets in the back seat, and you take your toys back there, and have a can of Shasta or whatever knockoff soft drink that mom and dad could afford. And, and you're driving from place to place. I remember taking these trips with my parents, and I never once worried that the car was going to wreck. How can that happen? Dad's in charge. Dad's got it. it. It never even occurred to me. Even when we broke down, it's like, that's ah, all right. Dad's, dad's in control. Now, as an adult, I know he wasn't. You know, I, I know that he was just as susceptible as the rest of us are. But as a child, I looked at that and I thought, he's in control. And it was such a wonderful place to be. It was such a blissful confidence. Guys, on the cosmic scale, our God is saying, I have all authority. I've got it all. I have control of the wheel here. I, th this ship is not rudderless. It is not you know, destined to just run into the rocks anywhere. I am controlling things. I have it. Now here's your little piece. Here's what I want you to do. And that is what is being communicated in this passage. Jesus came to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, and next week we'll discuss the therefore. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are magnificent. You are amazing. Jesus, I, I hope that we've all kind of come before you today and we've seen who you are and what you have done, the claims you made about yourself, and then we hear the claim you make about your authority. And God, I pray that we find comfort and consolation in that. Moreover, that it gives us the confidence to do what you said next. God, we love you. Thanks so much for loving us, even when we are unlovely even when we are rebels. It's in your most precious name we pray, Father. Amen.